Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, today's guest, an excellent one. This is one of my favorite podcasts I think I've ever done. It's with Dave Zirin. Dave is the sports editor at The Nation. Uh, his work uh, can be found under the banner of Edge of Sports. The idea is that he combines sports and politics, sports and social issues, sports and activism. And uh, Dave has two, not one, two fine books coming down the pike. Uh, due out April 3rd, which he co-wrote with Michael Bennett, the NFL star, uh, defensive lineman, is Things That Make White People Uncomfortable. And it is just as good and thought-provoking as the title. Uh, I got a chance to read this book ahead of time, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, like I said, very thought-provoking. Lots of fascinating ideas. Lots of stuff you wouldn't necessarily expect, uh, too, which gets discussed in the podcast. And uh, really enjoyable. And, and Bennett is also funny and, and entertaining. It's a really breezy read, if it's possible to be breezy when talking about Colin Kaepernick and uh, the NCAA cartel and a whole bunch of other stuff, too. Just a, a really fun book and a really um, a book that will teach you a lot and maybe put you in a little different space than you were beforehand. I know after reading it, I feel a little bit differently about some things I did before. How many books can you say that about? So that's cool. And then... Uh, Dave also has a book, which he wrote himself in this case, about Jim Brown. It's a biography. It's a political biography about Jim Brown, of course, the uh, great NFL star. And that book is called Last Man Standing. That comes out May 15th. Obviously, that's a little bit more fraught. Brown um, is not as progressive as Bennett in many ways. Uh, for one thing, uh, his vote in the 2016 election reflected that. Uh, for another thing, he's had uh, many issues over the years with domestic violence. And I talked to uh, Zyron about all that stuff. So, uh, interesting conflicts and an interesting man and, uh, worth the subject. Uh, Dave spent five years on that book as well. So two pieces worth looking into as well as this podcast, which I think you will dig. Um, we really dive deep on athlete activism and 10,000 other things. It's as wide ranging a podcast as you will find. So I hope you enjoy it. Also, let us discuss today's sponsor, friends. That is SeatGeek. SeatGeek is great, a longtime sponsor of the Jonah Carey Podcast. It's the best place to buy tickets to anything you could possibly want, games, concerts, what have you. I have used them on numerous occasions and can attest that SeatGeek is great. It's a color-coded map rooted in analytics so you can understand exactly where to sit. You want to go to a baseball game and you look and, wow, it seems like the best bang for the buck is actually over first base. Or maybe it's in the outfield, or maybe it's behind home plate, or maybe it's in the upper deck. Whatever it is, SeatGeek will get you the tickets that you want at the price that you want to the events that you want. They are terrific. And get this, if you download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Jonah, J-O-N-A-H, you'll get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. That's fantastic. Download the free SeatGeek app, enter the promo code Jonah, J-O-N-A-H, and you'll get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase to anything that you could possibly want to go to, which is pretty sweet. And thank you so much to SeatGeek for sponsoring this edition of the podcast. Programming notes, here we go. All the content you've been asking about is coming down the pike. My annual MLB over-unders column in which I take a bunch of teams and predict whether they're going to come in over or under the number set by Vegas and the various online sports books. That will be coming out just in the next few days. You will see that at CBS Sports. Not for nothing, but in last year's column, I had four main picks and three supplementary picks, and they went 7-0! Seven and zero, oh, and therefore, if you extrapolate that, I will literally never lose a bet for the rest of my life. Therefore, you should put all your money on all these bets. That's not actually true, but I did go seven and zero. Oh, that part is true. So, you know, we're allowed a little gloating in this industry, right? I'm wrong all the time. It's nice to be right, so that's cool. 
and then also MLB trade value. You'll see all those columns coming up at sportsnet.ca, where I will be doing writing this year, uh, mainly focused on the Toronto Blue Jays, but we will have those MLB trade value columns that you know and love. That'll be next week, and you'll see that in three different parts, and I'm excited about that. And, uh, yeah, some debate about who's number one, the most valuable trade commodity in all of baseball, considering age and ability and production and contract status and all that stuff. Maybe not the same as it's been in the past. We'll, we'll see how that goes. You can take a look at it at sportsnet.ca. So, yeah, that's all the fun stuff coming down the pike, as well as the usual allotment of things. Uh, and also, I mentioned it elsewhere in the show, but be sure to check me out on CBS HQ, which is our uh, 24-hour app and content platform where you can watch video of all kinds of stuff. Me talking baseball, Will Brinson, Pete Prisco, and the gang talking football, college basketball, my man Matt Norlander. It's March Madness time. Get all the Norlander you could possibly imagine. He'll give you all the scoop on all that stuff. That's CBS HQ, which you can get on your phone and you can get on your computer and you should support it because it's great and it helps us out. So here you go. It is the latest edition of the Joan Carey Podcast. It is with Dave Zirin. Enjoy. Right, so this guy has not one but two books coming up in the coming weeks. I, I have no idea. I assume you're some sort of cyborg, Dave Zirin. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, before we get into the content of these books, how is it that you have two books dropping within a span of a month? This is not a human being thing to do. So obviously you are some sort of cyborg and you need to cop to it right no. now. No, not a cyborg, not looking for Sarah Connor, not, not, not a time cop. Not working with Dolph Lundgren there. No bad <laughs> um, that was a Universal Soldier one at the end. Yes. But, thank you. But the uh, the, the basics of it is that I was working on this memoir um, manifesto with Michael Bennett just in the last year. We met really in January of 2017. Wow. He said he wanted wow. to write a book as soon as possible. And we just started doing the thing where um, I was recording him. We were writing together. Um, I went out. He, his off-season home is in Hawaii because that's where his wife is from, and he lives there six months out of the year with his three daughters. I went out there, and we just, you know, went in the woodshed and just did a lot of work and and just you know banged it out over the summer. And with so much happening in Michael's life over the last year, uh, from him making the decision to kneel during the anthem to uh, his decision to not go on a sponsored trip to Israel to uh, my goodness, everything that happened in Las Vegas with the police, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the tone and feel of the book kept shifting as we were going on. And that proved to be a challenge. But Michael Bennett's book was my entire focus this year. Now, the, the, the book about Jim Brown, which is not something I did with Jim Brown, although I was able to interview him for it. Yeah, that's more of a political biography and assessment of Jim Brown's political life. 
And it's an effort to try to explain really when you get down to it, like how somebody who is considered a like an incredible symbol of black resistance in the 1960s comes to be a supporter of Donald Trump in 2016. So it's kind of like this arc about what is it in his politics that brought him to this point on this 50-year journey. And this book about Jim Brown, honestly, I've been working on this thing for like five years. And so this past year, uh, obviously with a different publishing house, it was just a question of dotting I's and crossing T's and getting things done. So, you know, this past year, 2017, that was all about the Bennett book. And every other year for a very long time, it was just working on this book about Jim Brown. Well, and it's, I don't want to jump around too much, but I, I, there is a little bit of a common thread here. Uh, this book, the book with Bennett is called um, Things That Make White People Uncomfortable. And the book with uh, the Jim Brown book is called Last Man Standing. And uh, like I said, I want to take a deep dive into the Bennett book in particular. But one point I wanted to make about Brown, uh, and maybe we can get into this a little bit too, is, and it's related to the Bennett thing. So Bennett starts listing a bunch of his teammates, and he says, you know, these are the guys that I ride with, and it's all about a brotherhood, and I thought that was really interesting. And he goes through and he talks about Stephen Houchka. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, the place kicker, former place kicker for the Seahawks, uh, Cliff Averill, just goes on and on. And he mentions one teammate in particular who struggled with issues of domestic violence, which is to say he was guilty of domestic violence uh, when he was in college, and he's kind of coming along and he's working on contrition. He's working on being a better man. And uh, that comes up a lot with uh, a lot. Jim, Jim Brown has that in his past as well, where on multiple occasions, uh, you know, there were either allegations or something stronger than that about domestic violence. And it's an interesting one, too. It, ma- it makes you think a little bit about contrast that you have people who yeah. are trying to do good in the world in some way, but have, you know, one major, major, major red flag. So how did you come to terms with both? In the case of Bennett, obviously, you guys are just yeah. working on it. This is what he said. But in the case of Brown, it's part of his identity. What do we yep. make of that kind of contrast, doing good in the world, but also doing this horrific thing that for which there really is no excuse? Well, part of the argument in the Jim Brown book, and that's why the title is meant to be somewhat ironic, Last Man Standing, yeah. is that while Jim Brown, for much of his life, has been a ferocious opponent of of racism – uh, wherever he sees it, he's also been somebody who has this very outdated uh, mode of masculinity where part of being a man means, you know, not showing emotion. It means uh, not admitting to pain. Uh, it means not being vulnerable. And it's also a mode of masculinity that says if women are trying to achieve their own liberation, you don't see your liberation as being bound up with theirs. You actually see it as threat to your power and a threat to your place as the head of a family or the head of a community. Michael Bennett could not be more different than that. Yeah. Uh, Michael Bennett is somebody, I mean, there are chapters in the book about his politics with regards to women. And he's somebody who believes very strongly in the um, ideals and principles of women's liberation. He even wrote a statement last year in defense of uh, international women's day and what was called the international women's strike. In 2017, he's a huge admirer of Angela Davis, uh, and he, he's somebody who um, is really trying to live his life according to the principles of uh, men and women actually working together for a better world, even if it makes men uncomfortable. So in some respects, he could have called the book also Things That Make Men Uncomfortable, hmm. uh, because that's part of the point of the book is to try to get people to sort of step out of their comfort zone and confront ideas 
that may not conform to their individual identities, but to try to find sympathy or try to find empathy. So it's if you're white, like try to think for a second about why the Black Lives Matter movement matters. If you're a man, try to think for a second about why women's liberation matters. If you have nothing to fear from the police, try to think for a second about what it feels like to be put on the ground and have a weapon put to the back of your head when you're one of over 100 people running away from what you think are gunshots in a Las Vegas club um, or I should say casino. And so 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 the, these are some of the things that are at work here. And yeah, you're right with with Jim Brown. It's this common thread throughout his life. And Jim Brown's had this incredibly uh, remarkable life that ranges from, you know, being arguably the best NFL football player ever to uh, being a black liberation advocate with the black economic unions in the 60s and standing up for Muhammad Ali to being this star in Hollywood to being the person on the front end of the gang truces. And think about what all these things have in common. I mean, they're spectacular instances in one's life. They're also incredible canvases of masculinity and of what I would call toxic masculinity. If you're talking about Hollywood, if you're talking about uh, some of the like politics and gang culture. Um, and, and one of the things I explore in the book is his ability to connect with people in the Bloods and the Crips. Part of it is related to the fact that he represents this mode of manhood that's unassailable and incredibly tough. And like, like since he's the toughest guy, he's the shot caller. He's the person you listen to. And to his credit, he wielded that form of masculinity as a way to try to connect with people. But the flip side of that is that it can leave you emotionally kind of stunted. And, and, and I'll tell you something. It's like, I I talked to Jim Brown for multiple, like three or four straight days. I was staying in in his house and just would go out and talk to him when he felt like it, when he was sitting outside and his face is like this incredible slab of granite. I mean, it's, it's usually you describe someone as looking tough. You're looking at like their shoulders or their arms, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, or chest, this guy, it's just like his face is just like you take one look at him and you're like, this is not somebody you're going to mess with. And he's like 80 years old. And but, but with Michael Bennett, it's like we're talking and Michael Bennett just starts crying as he's talking about his wow. family or talking about his daughters. And and I would say to him something like, wait, yeah, you're crying. And he would be like, yeah, I'm crying. I'm a, I, I get vulnerable. You know, I feel things and I express them. I mean, and so that, that those two images in my mind of, of Jim Brown and his utterly impassive mask and Michael Bennett just opening up. I mean, to me, it's like the difference between, I don't know, somebody who, who's 80 and somebody who's 30. You know, somebody who comes up from that uh, pre-boomer generation, I mean, born in the 1930s, for goodness sakes, wow. and somebody who's this millennial. Just two very different people with very different ideas of how they see themselves as men in this society. And if I could just say one last thing, Jonah, I'm sorry to filibuster here, but no, like, no, okay. I'm sorry to feel that. But, but a lot of people have asked me in doing this book, cause I'm white, like, yeah. Oh, did doing yeah. this book make you uncomfortable? You know, things that make white people uncomfortable. Are you one of those people? And at first I would have, just have a very glib answer of just saying no, because I believe in the things that Michael <laughs> believes in. So no, this didn't make me uncomfortable at all. Sorry about that. Turning no that problem. off right away. No all good. And, <laughs> Yeah, turning it way off. And and um but when I think back on the actual experience, if I'm being honest, it's like even though, you know, I'm trying to be the kind of man, human being who 
believes in these things like vulnerability and not hiding your emotions and all the things like that, you know, that there were aspects where, yeah, like I did have to confront my own, own emotional stuntedness just talking to Michael. Because when you're talking to somebody and they're talking about their family and crying, and I'm thinking to myself, could I do that? And that would be really hard for me to open up to somebody the way he was opening up to me. And so it made me feel, you know, like, like good inside that he felt comfortable with me to do that. It also made me think like, wow, if I was on in his chair and he was in my chair, I don't know if I could do it. So yeah, the book made me uncomfortable too. And that's not a bad thing though, to be uncomfortable because, and this is one of Michael's main points in the book that he was like, we have to hammer this point home. If you're not uncomfortable, then you're not growing and you got to be uncomfortable these are like the words that he speaks and he and he writes in a beautiful way and he's just like it's like when you know when your bones are growing when you're 13 and it kind of hurts to go to sleep or when you know the the, the grown-up teeth are pushing out the baby teeth I mean it's it's built into our DNA that it's uncomfortable to grow and you know I certainly grew by by working on the book and I, I hope Michael did by the way he expressed himself. Yeah, and, and I, I will mention this in the intro to the podcast, but it's it's wonderfully written and an excellent read. I mean, uh, aside from the fact that the subject matter is interesting, it's just very well done. And we talk about subjects that make us uncomfortable. It's funny because there are the big ones, and we're going to get to the big ones too. But I, one of the, you know, on its surface, it would seem to be a smaller one, that you could be a person who has empathy, who, you know, is trying to uh, take part in a better society and all that, and yet you do this one thing, and that is the chapter that uh, has to do with the, what he calls the NFL soap opera. You know, he describes men in particular as describing to the idea of a soap opera, which is to say, number one, there are a lot of narratives that are, that are followed. In other words, the Seahawks uh, came one yard short of winning the Super Bowl one year, and therefore there's discord in the, in the clubhouse, and everybody's unhappy, and everybody talks about that. That's one element of it. And then another element of it is fantasy, is fantasy football, fantasy sports in general. Yeah. And how, you know, should we feel good about this or not? The fact that we call ourselves owners. I own Russell Wilson. I own, you know, Jose Abreu in baseball. I own LeBron James. I own anybody. Uh, it, gets, it gets to be iffy. And the idea of commoditization in the first place, fantasy in general can be that way. Uh, you know, and that hits a chord because a lot of people play fantasy and don't necessarily see anything wrong with it. Um, what did you get coming out of that conversation in particular, the idea of the soap opera and the idea of fantasy, because that was like, oh, you know, I contribute to Planned Parenthood and I, uh, march and I, you know, I take part in, uh, I believe in Black Lives Matter. I believe in this. I feel that I'm a good, uh, family man, whatever it is. I had these traits and yet this thing that I do would seem to be held against me, at least in, in, in Bennett's worldview, or at least that's the way that I read it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the number one thing that, that he thinks about, and which I've heard this from a lot of other players, and there's a lot of things on the record publicly that players have said about this, is this question of disassociation and forgetting that they're human beings and the way fantasy can feed into that. Now, my personal belief is that my personal belief is almost like a whatever gets you through the night theory or the the, the Hemingway line about um, you know morality is what you can feel good about in the morning. Right. I mean, right. if people if, if you play fantasy and you know life is hard and it gets you through, then by, by all means, you know, have a blast. You know, it, it's just it's something fun to do. Um, 
what Michael thinks and what a lot of people in football think is that is, is that and I've, I got to tell you, like I've heard this in football in a way I haven't heard it in other sports. Hmm. You know, you mentioned Abreu, for example, and I think it has to do with the violence of the sport. Yeah. And the the for a lot of players, the contradiction between fans caring so much about the fantasy players that they own and caring so little about the fact that these players are, are just going through multiple car wrecks on a weekly basis. And so players get hurt and they hear directly from fans, whether on social media or even on the street about like, oh, man, um, you got hurt and that totally messed up my fantasy team. Right. Right. And in hearing these things and feeling like there's this profound disassociation uh, about the humanity of the people who have to play these sports. And I, and I want to underline that point. Like I've never heard this from a basketball player or a baseball player, but I've both heard this and read this from so many football players <laughs> that they find it um, like racially iffy and problematic, like the whole idea of feeling a sense of ownership of the players in a way that's super paternalistic mm-hmm. and, okay. um, and, and offensive in that feeling like it denies their humanity. And I have to think that the, the, what makes football different from these other sports, it has to be the violence and it has to be just feeling like they go through so much to play this game. And th- I got to tell you, that was another thing from spending time with Michael in Seattle, uh, working on the book in the fall. Because we wanted it to be done by September, but then so much happened with Ma- with Michael's life, yes. it, it, you know, we had to just keep it going. And so we're trying to work around the clock while he's getting ready for games. And as someone who's been around sports for 15 years, I've never had this sort of inside view of what an NFL player has to go through just to get ready for the game on the next Sunday. And it, it's kind of awe-inspiring, like – like the amount of physical therapy, the amount oh, yeah. of just oh, yeah. uh, of, of massage therapy. Like I knew it intellectually and I'd read the stories and whatnot. But to see someone like have a deep tissue massage on their calf for like an hour while we're talking <laughs> and it looks so freaking painful, like the worst massage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like if you did that to me, there would be a spider web of bruises across my calf. And, and just to know that that's just one part of their body and it's on a Thursday before a Sunday. So they are consciously bruising themselves just 72 hours before a game because that's the only way they can heal their body to get ready to play again. Well, and he, CTE comes into it a lot. There's a lot of discussion about that. There's a lot of discussion about injuries. And this covers a lot of ground. And, and again, many topics I don't want to get to. But uh, – it didn't seem like, you know, the problem was discussed, but it didn't seem like the obvious solution was put forth. And I don't even know if this could be done if the NFL were too far down the road. Um, but it's the idea of non-guaranteed contracts. It's referenced. It's discussed. Yeah. But the NFL has always had a crappy union, frankly. I mean, it's not that the people in it are, are bad or maybe didn't try. But, you know, I, again, I come from a largely baseball background. Baseball yeah. union has always been incredibly strong. Obviously, guaranteed contracts, wealth for all, middle relievers making $10 million a year, and that's all great. And in football, which you're putting the most on the line, you're in danger of losing your life. That CTE study of 111 former players that showed that 110 have signs of CTE, and yet contracts aren't guaranteed. Somebody can bounce you in, the, in a second. That was nuts to me. So, you know, not, again, not discussed tremendously in the book. Did Bennett express his feelings about that? Is there a feeling that he, oh, talk, sure. he talked about ownership? He talked about that the, the move would be if Michael Bennett or 
whoever, you know, Tom, not Tom Brady, because I guess he's white, but if players could own teams eventually, that would rectify the problem. But on a more basic level, can the union be fixed so that at least this violent sport can have some security for the players beyond what's addressed now? That, that to me, would be, would be so difficult to do. And, yeah, of course, uh, Michael Bennett and every player you talk to, they want guaranteed contracts, yes. and they roll their eyes, as we should roll their eyes, when you hear things like, a five-year, $55 million yeah. contract, and you know that only the first year and a signing bonus for the second year is guaranteed. And, um, and, and that's what you always want to look to is the guaranteed money and the number of years attached to it. And it's usually so different from the actual number that you hear. Um, yeah, they want it. it. It's so hard to see it happen because of the injury rate, honestly. And that's what the owners are trying to protect themselves against is paying – tens of millions of dollars to players who cannot play. Now, players would say that, well, wait a minute, you know, a contract should be a contract. And if you're signing me to five years at this amount of money, then that's the risk you're taking on. If you're so scared of that risk, sign me for two years then. You know, let the market decide basically how many years you should pay me for. If I'm 22 and I don't have an injury history in college, sign me for eight years at $80 million and then live to the extent of that contract. And it'll be so interesting to see if that happens because there are certain things that we know. I mean, we know that NFL owners are, you know, the most conservative billionaires on the sports landscape. We know that the union um, is not as strong as the baseball union, for example. We know these things. And so then the question becomes, how do you change it? And the only way to change it would be for football players to do what the baseball players did. And that would be to withhold their labor. There really is no other power that they have. Right. And here's right. get to another tricky situation, unlike baseball players, is that the typical NFL career is only three and a half years. And even that number is really misleading because, of course, it's an average. And you have players who play eight, nine, ten years. But you have this incredibly large pool of players whose names we don't necessarily know who basically have one or two years. People just write on the margins one or two years to make probably 90% of the money that they're going to make in their entire lives. Yeah. And so getting players to strike in that context, getting them to hold out until there's change, uh, getting them to sacrifice, say, a year of their sport um, is a very dicey proposition. It's, But it's the only thing that'll work. And so then we got to look at how is it that baseball was able to do it because I mean even though baseball players play more with less injuries I mean it's hardly you're hardly playing for 40 years and then you get a gold watch either and I've always thought that baseball was um had this incredibly remarkable uh coming together of these different factors like a, a kid named Kurt Flood from Oakland who was very radicalized by the by the black freedom struggle and mm-hmm. a guy mm-hmm. a guy like Marvin Miller who decides like, hey, after years of working in the Steelworkers Union, I want to give this a try in baseball. And you know, and leaders like people like uh, from Roberto Clemente to Joe Torre, like people who took this very seriously um, in terms of their own leadership. And I don't even know if there's a good book written about how the baseball union built its solidarity through the early 1970s, but it would be a fascinating read uh, because – it, it really was this coming together of a, of a very specific time in our society and a couple of very remarkable individuals because without that, I mean, you know what baseball labor rules were like in the 50s and 60s. I mean, it was it was absurd. 
Um, and so the, it, it really was able to come together because people fought for it, not because it was bestowed from on high, just like it would never be bestowed from on high by the NFL. Uh, I will provide two book recommendations since you're bringing that up. One is called A Well-Paid Slave, Curd Flood's uh, Fight Love. for Free Agency in Professional Sports, which I read a few years ago. Excellent. And uh, a more recent one, or at least it deals with a more recent timeline, is Lords of the Realm by John Hellyar, which might be my favorite sports book. It's one of my favorite books ever on any level. And that gets into the labor issues that are 80s and 90s, a lot of it, but it obviously traces back to the union and deals with Miller and all that stuff, too. So both are recommended if you want to get kind of a holistic sense for it's baseball, but it's other unions and it's it's very, very important uh, you know, I, as far as this stuff goes. Go ahead. I don't know Lords of the Realm at all. I'm, I'm excited you know, I read that I'm a well-paid slave. Now, now I'm all excited. If I want to recommend a book, and I'm not just saying this, I would recommend your book about the Expos. Oh, which is nice. one of the reasons I was so thrilled that you asked me to be on this podcast. I just, I'd feel remiss if I didn't say this. Like I, I grew up just the, an utterly unhinged New York Mets fan in the 1980s, and that meant knowing the NL East cold. And I grew up just like. Like names like Ellis Valentine and Warren Cromartie, Tim Wallach, uh, pre-Mets Gary Carter. I mean, these people, Steve Rogers, Charlie Lee. I mean, these people were, these people terrified me. (laughs) These were the people who kept me up nights, literally. And my my dream is to tell Ellis Valentine that, uh, that he kept me from sleeping before three game series with the New York Mets. Well, because he was that scary. Interesting. You said, first of all, Valentine ended up getting traded to the Mets, by the way, for Jeff Reardon, although by then it seems like his best skills had passed. But the common <laughs> common thread here, and I'm going to have Ellis on the podcast pretty soon, actually, uh, which is a funny coincidence. And the common thread with you and Ellis is that both are uh, friends of Amy Kaufman, my girlfriend, who passes her regards and, and suggested, why don't you talk to Zyron? Why don't you talk to Ellis? These are people to talk to. And I said, yes, we should do this. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, to Amy Kaufman, who's the sister of Dave Kaufman, a terrific uh, radio announcer who I'm proud to call a friend um, and talk showologist. He is, and, and similar sensibilities to you, by the way, talking about that kind of intersection of sports and politics, that edge of sports idea, too. So absolutely to Dave, who's uh, one of the best at that as well. So let's get into some of the prescriptions that are discussed by Bennett. And it's interesting. He talks about the idea of ownership, and he says, you know, it sucks. It sucks that there are no uh, NFL owners of color, but to me, and Bennett acknowledges it too, that's an institutional thing. It's hard to affect change if you're a great D lineman or whatever because you've got, you know, decades of these Jerry Richardson types and Jerry Jones types, and that's a tough one to topple. So what he says is rather than trying to do that, that it would be great if it happens, but if you are a star NFL player or NBA or MLB or whatever, the way to go about it as a person coming up in society is to just crush stem just absolutely dominate that become the next bill gates regardless of whether you're white or brown or black or whatever do that he gets into that extensively and there's an intersection there with women in particular because not it's not only something that is often denied to people of color but to women where it doesn't seem like women are encouraged in the same way to follow stem careers he's got daughters he talks about it extensively and and i came away from this book more broadly thinking Oh, this isn't just the guy who's saying, this is bad, this is bad. He's actually trying to prescribe solutions. There are other solutions I'm going to ask you about. But this fixation on STEM, I thought, was fascinating and and extremely pragmatic. And I got to say, that was one of those things that made this white person uncomfortable because I was so bad at science. Hmm. Uh, And and that's when I was Me too, by the way. (laughs) 
th- those were the times where I was like, okay, Michael, you need to slow me down and really bring me along here as we're working on this. Yeah. Because science, tech, math, I mean, th- these were things that were very challenging to me and things that Michael believes in very strongly. And I want just to be clear, like th- these aren't just things that he advises. These are things that he financially supports uh, with the Bennett Foundation is a STEM programs, particularly for girls and, and in other countries as well. Like he's gone to uh, from sub-Saharan Africa to Haiti to I saw him with uh, Micronesian refugees in um, in Hawaii wow. uh, working with them on STEM projects. And, you know, his arguments for this are very sound. If you look at the number of STEM jobs that we expect to be available over the next 10, 20 years. I mean, it's mind boggling. And you compare that to the number of jobs open for defensive tackles. Uh, it's, it's less impressive. And so he, he's trying to get young people and he works with young people nonstop uh, to conceive of their potential in ways that are not allied with sports. And in some ways, I got to say that makes him a bit of a heretic because even in the sports world, because even though outside the sports world, you know, my wife's a teacher. I've heard a million teachers say a million times, you know, we have to get kids not thinking, particularly young boys, that being an athlete is the only way uh, to elevate your economic station in this world, that education is the way to do that. Um, You know, it's one thing when a teacher says it, as important as those voices are. It's another thing when Michael Bennett says it. Yeah. And he's he's saying to young people basically what he's saying, and it's a radical message, is don't be like me. It's like find something else to do with your life where you have a chance to, you know, achieve basically only by your own grit. And and particularly when it comes to football, like he's got a section about what he feels like football, particularly college football, does to people. And he's trying to show people a different path. No question about it. And he gets into another topic, which, of all, it's funny. I, he, he, people are going to approach this book, and you talk to 10 people, I bet they're going to have 10 different answers of what their favorite thing was. And this might have been it for me, or certainly way up there was the discussion about food, which there's no way. There's no way. I thought this would be about Kaepernick. I thought it would be about Black Lives Matter. I thought it would be about concussions and all those things happen and we're going to get to Kaepernick because obviously there's a lot to discuss there but a ton of stuff about food and food security and food deserts and how if you are impoverished good luck finding a healthy meal and healthy ingredients for meals near your house that are not expensive it is almost impossible to do Whole Foods isn't necessarily going to West Baltimore or to Southside Chicago or whatever and this is a major problem and he is really really committed to this of all his charitable works all his causes if this isn't number one, it's way up there. Yeah. Uh, did you know any of this coming in, and what did you take out of it? Because I, I just thought, God, that's amazing. This is perfect, and 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 something that that resonates so highly here. Yeah, and it's another thing that you can help people with very concretely. Mm-hmm. Because, um, and no, I, I didn't know this. I, I went into this really a blank slate. Like I met Michael Bennett on stage, literally. Wow. Yeah. Literally, January of, of 2017, we met on stage where I was going out to Seattle to do a talk and a good friend of mine out there who's a teacher who'd been working with Michael Bennett on some projects uh, said to me, hey, when you're coming out here, how would you like to interview Michael Bennett on stage instead of doing what I was going to do, which is talk about Brazil and the Olympics? And <laughs> I was like, I was like, please, I would much rather talk to Michael Bennett yeah, on yeah. stage. Then talk about Brazil and the Olympics. And so they switched the room that we were going to meet in from a small room at this place called Town Hall Seattle to their main 
sanctuary and we filled the place up hundreds and hundreds of people um and interviewing him on stage uh he was so incredibly funny that i was just like and then afterwards he said to me hey i've been thinking about doing a book i read this book you wrote about 1968 olympian john carlos do you want to work on this with me and i was just i was like hell yeah and but that that was like the limits of of what i knew going in that he was funny and thoughtful and then when he went when i started to talk to him and he was speaking about the food deserts uh that was a, an awakening for me because it was something I'd never really thought about before um, and about not about food in that, like, how do you get up in the morning and try to achieve in STEM if you're super logy from the previous day, yep. you know, eating yep. just fast food? Like, how do you focus on the future when your your dad has colon cancer? Like, how do you uh, make sure that your family is healthy and well fed if there's literally nothing around you? that provides you know safe and healthy and natural foods and why should that be a privilege it doesn't even make a lot of sense that it's a privilege that food that comes out of the ground is only available to people with the means to to make it happen and it's one of the things that michael says in the book is he says like what does it say that this is like a country where you know poverty is usually allied with obesity you know not people starving but people who can't move. And and one of the things he said that really got through to me, and I got to say, like, I had a very similar experience because I do some stuff in youth prisons as well. And I've seen this um, is that he asked somebody he does. Michael plants gardens in youth prisons. That's yeah. one of his things yeah. he does is fresh fruit, fresh vegetables uh, grown in the gardens. And he asked, you know, like somebody who'd been there like 30 years um, asked them, like, how are things different now than 30 years ago? And he thought, that they would say, oh, these kids today are more dangerous or whatever, because that's usually what you expect to hear. Right. And instead right. he said the kids today are more tired, that it's just they're depressed and that it's hard to get them out of bed. So instead of there being this kind of like, like, you know, like, like you watch a TV show like Oz and you think of this kind of like fidgety pent up rage that expresses itself in these bursts. And that's what prison life is mm. like in these mm. youth prisons. It's people who don't want to get out of bed in the morning. It's people who are utterly sluggish. And so getting them to rehabilitate, uh, if that word still exists in our prison system, uh, is something that's much more about motivation than it is about redirecting energy. As always, you give an answer and then I have 25 follow-ups. Uh, one which I'll just make a quick comment on and then we'll bounce to the next question. But you talk about it being funny. Uh, if you don't like Rob Gronkowski, this book is for you because it goes after Gronk on multiple occasions in a very funny way. And he's just got he's got this way about him that's very it's very trash talking, but in, in the best possible ways. I'm not even sure how to express it possibly uh, yeah. correctly, but I really enjoyed that. And, and so it's not it's not like this is some sort of sermon for 200 odd pages. You will smile. You will laugh. This is an I, I read this book, a lot of it on, on one flight, basically. And uh, it was just like fun to read in many, many parts too. So there's yeah. that. Um, you I just tell you that, that was the scary thing when I was working with him is like, if people don't get across from this, that this is a seriously funny dude, yeah. like the kind of guy you'd actually want to hang out with and talk shit with, then I really messed this up. And it, so that, that was like my own pressure is like, this guy is, is good people. He's funny people. And people should know that when they read this. Yeah. It's an interesting thing to go from rage to humor and to, to fit to prescribing things, but it's, I, 
this is done in this book. You mentioned the Olympics, and, and this will be a, an attempt at a segue here. The Olympics suck, too. Make no mistake. And, and the situation in the favelas while the Olympics were going on in Rio was horrible. And had you given that talk instead of the Bennett talk, that would have been instructive, too. And I can't help but link the Olympics, FIFA, and the NCAA. I, I hate them all. Not a fan of any of them. They're all corrupt in a certain way. And, and Bennett goes in, you and Bennett, go into the NCAA at length. And this is a subject that I feel like wasn't discussed in ma- in the mainstream all that much as recently as maybe five years ago. And now even sports writers and fans who wouldn't necessarily be considered yeah. all that enlightened, this has hit the mainstream. It is understood that the NCAA is total garbage and that exploitation is going on. And yet we're still not where we need to be. Players are still not getting compensated or need- at least not getting compensated legally. And Bennett goes into this extensively. Uh, where are we at with this? And, and, and where can we get with this? Because this is just a completely corrupt system that anybody would seem to understand how ridiculous it is, and yet we haven't gotten where we need to get. Well, first of how things have changed. I agree with you completely how mainstream this discussion has become from a couple of us talking it on the margins. Yeah. Um, I was interviewed on, on KNBR, which is straight-up sports talk radio um, in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And on the host, this was about a year or two ago, about a year ago, and the host said to me that he read something I wrote in 2005 about the NCAA and quote-unquote thought I was a nut. And he said now 10 years later he agrees with it. Yep. And so then I, I put it on him and I said, well, what's changed then? Because I'm, I'm, st- still, I'm still the same nut. So what's <laughs> changed? And he said the answer, which I think opens this whole Pandora's box, and it's the money. I mean, that's the yeah. change. I mean, for those yeah. of us, there have been voices like like Upton Sinclair was writing about corruption in college sports 80 years ago. Du, du, du Bois wrote about it a century ago, like right at its inception. But for most people, they said, well, wait a minute. You play some sports on the side. You get a good education. You know, that's a good system. And what's changed is the money. Uh, one of the things that I say just to give people a sense of it is, uh, you know, last year – uh, Dabo Sweeney and Clemson, they win the NCAA, uh, no, not the NCAA, the college football championship. Yep. And, yep. and I think his salary that year when all the bonuses came in was about $9 million. Wow. Oh, wow. Uh, D- Danny Ford coached Clemson to their last championship 35 years earlier. And his salary that year, I looked it up, was 50 grand. <laughs> so how does a job that was 50 grand in 1982 become a job that's $9 million in 2017? That's, that's the question. And when you, when you start looking at the answer, the idea of not play, paying players uh, becomes absurd. It becomes an absolute absurdity. The idea of having this section of the workforce that is completely cut off from constitutional protections in a cartel uh, is something that, that must be addressed and more and more voices are saying so. Now, Here's where we get to the interesting question about like why isn't change happening more rapidly? And I think it, it all comes it's not dissimilar to our discussion about football players getting guaranteed contracts. Is that it's just you the NCAA is a cartel. Right. And cartels don't break on their own. In fact, they're they're notoriously difficult to break on their own. They really can't be broken on their own because if you're at the top of that cartel, I mean, it's like Tony Soprano saying, you know what, I, I think I just want to, you know, open up a little uh, a little sausage factory here in, <laughs> in, in Newark. 
and you know just work the sausage place and go see my therapist and call it a day. It's like you can't do that. Uh, and so without, I mean, without like what Jalen Rose said, I mean, without, and it's unbelievable that, you know, you have Jalen Rose saying this stuff yeah. um, so publicly, uh, without players going on strike, without players withholding their labor, uh, it's not going to change. What's remarkable is the amount of power that these players have that's, except for the University of Missouri, um, a couple of years back where they got the university president fired, president fired when they said they were going to boycott one game. You haven't seen that kind of power re- get, get realized, but the power is there. I mean, imagine if before the final four, oh, yeah. the best oh, yeah. three players on each team just said, we're going to sit unless you sit with us at a negotiating table. I mean, the NCAA, by the last statistic I saw, gets 89% of their operating revenue uh, from March Madness alone. And so they would they would sit and they would talk and they cleared over a billion dollars this past year. They crossed the billion dollar plateau. That's money they've cleared after they've done the incredible wasteful spending that they do on Mark Emmert's salary, salary yep. on the vice presidents of various of the NCAA salary. They all make six figures, like a dozen vice presidents, like compliant. Think about compliance offices at big schools, which are their entire departments in the athletic department. Mm -hmm. Like imagine getting rid of all of that. And so you, you have, um, even after all of that incredible waste, which is another feature of a cartel is waste is because they don't have to compete against anything. And on top of that, there's a billion dollars. Here we come to the crux of it too, because you talk about this idea of striking right before the final four and you're dealing with, you know, the best three players, odds are they're freshmen in this day and age. So that means they're 19 years old. How many of us are that self-actualized at 19 that we could say, I'm taking a stand. I'm taking a stand for the 19-year-olds that are going to come after me. When, in fact, the three best players on every team are probably on their way to NBA contracts. Literally a couple months later, they're about to enter the draft. They're, they're going to do that. That idea of selflessness, that idea of organization, that idea of unity, that idea of courage, it's... Who among us in their forties could do it? You know, it's it's not an easy thing. It's it's a very hard thing to do it. And and I think this gets back to, you know, it, it's impossible for this not to be the through line in the Bennett book and in the book that you did with him, is Colin Kaepernick. I mean, that's where we're at. That's that's where the rubber hits the road. This is what happens if you open your mouth. And Bennett acknowledges it multiple times in the book. He says, you know what? I'm an all pro. I'm a great player. But this could be it for me. You know, maybe there's going to be one time where I open my mouth one too many times and that's the end of it. Now, he did get traded in the offseason. I don't necessarily think that was the reason he got traded because he got traded. Uh, But these guys are at the whims of owners and, and things could happen. Where do you think we are in terms of athletes opening their mouths and risking getting, as as Bennett says, whiteballed for this thing? Are there going to be more Kaepernicks who are Certainly good players, but they're just absolutely going to get pushed out of the game because of what they say. Or have we now reached a tipping point where uh, the jig is up, we can all see right through you. If you try this, uh, then fans at home are going to stop watching the Seattle Seahawks or, the, or whatever, the Golden State Warriors or any team like that. Oh, no, they'll still do it because uh, and the, the blackballing, could, well, I think, will still occur. Um, I think, though, with Kaepernick, one of the great things that's happened is that he – was supposed to become a ghost story. Yeah. He was supposed to become the name that would frighten NFL players 
and other athletes from taking any sort of a stand. Like, um, I remember hearing that Craig Hodges, who played for the Chicago Bulls in the early 90s, and he was politically outspoken, and he was blackballed from the NBA. Um, I, I heard that managers would say, like personal managers to NBA players would say to them, hey, keep it quiet. You don't want to end up like Craig Hodges. You don't end up like Craig Hodges. So Craig Hodges in and of himself became a ghost story. You know, this person whose name was whispered, whose story wasn't discussed. You just knew you didn't want to end up like Craig Hodges. Uh, Colin Kaepernick was supposed to be that ghost story. And instead, he became not a cautionary tale, but a kind of a martyr. He became a spirit. Uh, He became something that infused players to still speak out. And this is why this last NFL season, even before Donald Trump, it was explosive even before him. And one of the reasons for that was that players did not want Colin's sacrifice to be in vain. And that's the thing about sacrifice. And we were talking about it with the NCAA athletes. Uh, It's about giving something up for something bigger than yourself. It's about the risk. And the thing about the risk is that it's scary for all the reasons you said. And it's also the reason why I would never and people should never be judgmental of people who don't take those risks because it's such a big thing to ask. And yet at the same time, when you do take those risks, what it does is it infuses your actions with meaning. And that meaning is something that stands the test of time. It's why we're going to remember Colin Kaepernick in 20, 30 years in a way, say, we won't remember – say, an outspoken person in Hollywood like George Clooney in 20 or 30 years. It's why we remember, for example, Muhammad Ali, but don't necessarily remember that Marlon Brando was also this outspoken activist during that same time because the risk was very different and the sacrifice was very different. And one of the things that I found very encouraging is that you see tons of young people, particularly in high schools, looking at Kaepernick and drawing a kind of inspiration from that and really thinking critically about issues like patriotism and sacrifice and in a, in a way that they weren't before. And, you know, that legacy for Kaepernick is something that, you know, Jerry Jones will never have. One, and one guy who gives me hope here is LeBron, you know, that, that ultimately, you know, Kaepernick, good, very good player, Bennett, great player, LeBron, second, third best player of all time, maybe the best player of all time. And he's out there, you know, his, Jordan, he's, he always gets compared to Jordan and Jordan wouldn't do it. Jordan had to sell sneakers to everybody and he had to do all that stuff. And LeBron does not care. He is going to say what he's going to say. And that liberates everybody. Then if you're the seventh man on the Utah jazz, you could do whatever you want to do. If you're the backup linebacker on the Seattle Seahawks, you could do whatever you want to do because LeBron's doing it. So why not? It's, it's very empowering to see that kind of thing. And kids, you know, 13 year olds now who are playing AAU are going to say, you know what? I could dunk on anybody I want to, and also I could be like LeBron, and I don't have to keep my mouth shut. That's great. We're very, very lucky to have him and, and CP and, and all those guys who are superstars who are saying what they want to say, too. That bodes well, I think, for the sports world and activism. No, absolutely. It, it's that idea of providing cover for others. Yeah. Which is a very, you know, that's another thing, though, that takes a lot of courage because when you're someone like LeBron and you clearly have aspirations of being this kind of a mogul, and not just being a basketball player, and you're already taking those steps, uh, stepping out there and speaking out. I, I got to tell my, my quick LeBron analysis, Please. if I could. Um, 
is because this is where I was I was so freaking wrong. Um, I, I I just started sports writing when LeBron came into the league, so I was of course fascinated by him. And I'll never forget he did this interview where he said that his aspirations were to be the richest pro athlete who ever lived and uh, a global icon like Muhammad Ali. And he's saying this as an 18, 19 year old. Yeah. And I remember writing with, you know, I, I tried not to write it dripping with condescension, but maybe I can't help it when I'm writing about a teenager. Uh, but but I, I wrote, well, those are really nice goals, but they're not necessarily goals that go well together because we remember Muhammad Ali for what he sacrificed. And one of the things that he sacrificed was something that could have been there for him, which is being the richest athlete in the world. And he sacrificed that because of the war in Vietnam, because of the black freedom struggle. And what LeBron has done is prove people like myself very wrong, that you can really, I mean, frankly, unfortunately, what it comes down to is it's if you're good enough on the court and it's if you're good enough on the court, you really can have your cake and eat it too. Uh, you can be the mogul activist, yeah, yeah. which is a, a new template that he's creating and I think that also gives other players confidence because, you know, while I think there are more and more athletes who are willing to be like Colin Kaepernick, I'm sure it'll help you sleep a little better at night if you think, well, I can also be like LeBron James. And yeah, you know, seriously. I'm sure that just, you know, helps, helps put the demons at bay, at least for one night. Uh, just a couple more here. I wanted to go back to Jim Brown. Uh, just, and by the way, do pick up uh, things that make white people uncomfortable. Phenomenal. So on the Brown book, you know, you talk about the circling back and, and getting to Trump that, you know, you're an activist in a certain way, uh, but then, you know, you come back to it and and now he's a Trump supporter. Is that a function of being 80 years old uh, or, or or how did we get to that point? Because yeah. and, and again, you know, people should definitely read the book when it comes out May 15th because there'll be lots of nuance. But uh, how does one arrive at that? How do you hold those such different ideas in your mind of being a militant black man and also somebody who supports a president who uh, kind of, not kind of, in the other direction in every way. Yeah, this is why it's so important to know, know Jim Brown's history. And I have a whole chapter in the book about the black freedom struggle of the 1960s because I think some of the, sometimes what's written out of that history is that there was a whole wing of that struggle that was actually very critical of the civil rights movement, very critical of Dr. King, very critical of marches, very critical of civil disobedience. And they believed instead that black people needed to organize themselves as if they were a model immigrant group. And one of the, and Jim Brown was in that category. He was like, we need resistance. But what he meant by resistance was something very different than what someone like Dr. King meant by resistance. Right. And what he meant instead was this idea of building up the economic power of the community. And he often would speak and still speaks to this day. His opinions on this absolutely have not changed. But he'll speak about uh, about Jewish people or about the Korean population and say, look at what these folks did in terms of pooling their resources as a community to raise them all up. I think personally he has a kind of an idealized view of both those communities and how they operated. I say that as a Jewish guy. Uh, but moving on from that, um, that that's what he looked towards back then. So he supported, uh, for example, Richard Nixon in 1968. And uh, and he supported Nixon precisely because Nixon said things at that time. Nixon used the phrase black power in his election campaign. Hmm. Hmm. And I include that in the book, Quotes from Nixon, where he talked about black power. 
because but for, for Nixon, black power meant not him surrendering any of his power, but it meant uh, more economic self-sufficiency right. um, in the black community. And that's where Jim Brown was. Now, here's an interesting side effect of that. Jim Brown was hardly the most prominent um, black person in the country who supported Nixon in 1968. Uh, James Brown, the godfather of soul, yep. did yep. also. And Sammy Davis Jr. did also. Now, I read – I did a lot of research for this book. I spent a lot of years on it. And when I went back and looked at the black press in 1968, I found tons of columns excoriating James Brown and excoriating Sammy Davis Jr. for supporting Nixon. Right. I could not find one thing written excoriating Jim Brown. Interesting. And, because he's an athlete? No, no, no. It's because of the – because he hadn't played at that point for about three three or, or an about example, two, yeah. two like, years. Yeah. Two years he'd been out. It, it, it's more his presence and his power and what he represented. I mean he's supporting Nixon in 68 and Huey Newton, uh, one of the founders of the Black Panther Party, is coming over to Jim Brown's house all the time just to talk to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean there's this there's this aura that he had of, of not just manhood but super manhood. Hmm. What's yeah. crazy is how often writers compare him to Superman or the black Superman. I mean he was like a superhero to so many people because of the way he played on the field. Right, right. So the way he played had this representation all its own. I know you're very familiar with – more than familiar with Jackie Robinson. Sure. Um, sure. The Montreal Connection among all other things. Mm. But, um, but like Jackie Robinson was powerful not just because he was black but because of the way he played and how different it was. And it was the similar thing with Jim Brown. It was the way he played gave him an aura of being indestructible. And remember, he played nine years and didn't miss a game at a time where, you yeah. know, a typical <laughs> game, you know, resembled. The equipment uh, was not the same, all that. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to do a, a second Oz reference. I mean, it was <laughs> an ugly scene in the scrum of those games. Yeah. And, and so, so it's a, a different kind of era, a different kind of person. But I, I swear, like one of the things he did in 2016 when he came out and supported Trump is he was sharply critical, Jim Brown was, of John Lewis, uh, the civil rights hero in huh. Congress. And one of the things he said about John Lewis, who at the time was saying that he didn't think Trump's election was legitimate, he said about John Lewis, he said, um, look, I really respect John Lewis for all the parades that he marched in. Uh, but you know what he said is really wrong. And that that I heard that, and I you know I'm working on this book for years, and I hear Jim Brown say that, and I almost smiled to myself because calling civil rights demonstrations parades is a tremendous insult, and he used those same insults in the 1960s that he's using today, 50 yeah. years later. Yeah. So it's like that that political core, that political line that he's had has has never has never changed. Well, and I guess that's a cautionary tale, too, because if you build somebody up as a Superman and somebody is beyond criticism and, and just slips under the radar and, and does things that are unsavory and eh, gets criticized, but it's not really to the same extent, what incentive do you have to change? Jim Brown has never been pressured into it. He doesn't have to. So that's sort of where you're at is it just you can let it go and just keep going in that direction, which is unfortunate, to say the least. But the, the tragedy is then you don't grow. Yeah, which is and that's the whole point of the of the book that you did with Michael Bennett, which is it's it's all about growth. The whole book is about growth yeah. and and find your most righteous friend and he or she has work to do. Uh and and uh you know, I I 
I know I do. I, I think we all do. And I really, uh, I got a lot out of it. So I appreciate it. Uh, Dave, one last question, which we do at the end of every podcast is I always ask the guests for a life tip, a nugget of wisdom, uh, something that represents everything that they're about. I, uh, come up to you one day and, uh, we have a little chat and, uh, you talk about the thing that is, uh, that is all you, that if you were lecturing a class, you talk about it, or maybe you're just hanging out with a buddy and you talk about, oh, this is my thing. And it could be something extremely serious. And uh, the topics that you discuss are often extremely serious, or it could be something silly, frivolous, just a superstition, whatever it is. But it is the quintessentially Dave's iron thing. What is your thing? Uh, I would say try not to live somewhere where you can't get good pizza. Oh, that's a good one. That's I, a good one. Yeah. This, this is a. Uh, that's what. I, that's my life. I mean, I grew up in New York City, and now I live uh, in Washington D.C. and have for some time. And and the absence of a good slice of pizza is the thing that weighs on me the heaviest. And so, so like, it's so like someone might hear me say that and think, Oh, Dave's making a joke, but like, this is actually me being very serious. Like this is for all the people 2021, you're thinking about where you're going to live in life. Just find a place that has good pizza. It just makes everything else that much easier. Your inbox is going to get inundated by people say, Oh, you've obviously never been to Reston, Virginia, where they have this place. You've obviously never been to PG County where there's this place in Maryland. You've obviously never been to, uh, you know, whatever DuPont circle. Don't forget about this pizza. That, that's what's you're going to get blitz now with this stuff. That's what's going to happen. And, and I'll say to them that I have spent almost two decades in this area looking for that slice of pizza in <laughs> rest Virginia. And it ain't there. My first job in the United States was in Reston, Virginia, and uh, that, that was it. <laughs> that, that's the, nice. I, I'm good. Reston was fun. That's the end of that. So there you go. Uh, God. And now it's ground zero of the fan base of the team you grew up rooting for, ironically enough. I guess that's true. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, and Northern Virginia is, is Washington National Central. It is. Uh, Dave Zirin, what a pleasure. I'm so happy we got to do this. I've been an admirer of your work for, I don't know, since the Taft administration. And uh, two books coming out at the same time, really, really cool. Uh, Pick up things that make white people uncomfortable. That is April 3rd. Uh, April 3rd. 3rd. And then uh, the Jim Brown book, which... May 15th. May 15th as well. Last Man Standing. And uh, Dave, congrats on all your work. Not just the success, but the fact that you're shining a light on these worthwhile causes and uh, appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. No, thanks for your work. And I'm going to go by Lords of the Realm right now. Excellent.